going to jump in here to Luke 19. Before we do, though, I want to, to prep you on what's going on. So they're about to celebrate the Feast of Passover when Jesus enters Jerusalem for that final time. Right? This is the beginning of the, what we refer to as the Holy Week. So remember that when they celebrate the Passover, the Jewish people were celebrating freedom from Egyptian bondage, freedom from being slaves in Egypt. Right? That's when the Passover was established, when the Lord passed over the household's of the people of Israel and their oldest sons survived. In Egypt it didn't, right? The angel of death came and, and took the Egyptians' firstborn sons. So they're just remembering the event of God making them free, of God coming to their rescue, hearing their cries of oppression, and, and bringing them to freedom. That's the whole point of, of Passover. So in Jerusalem, during this feast of Passover, Jewish people from all around the world would try to come there if they could. So Estimates from 100,000 extra people to 2 million people, depending on the year, would swell into the city of Jerusalem, just pack it. I mean, anywhere they could sleep, they could camp out, they would, they would be. So you can imagine the excitement. For us, it pale, obviously it pales in comparison, but when Fiddler's Week comes around, right, and all these people start rolling into town, it's similar, right? You, you have that kind of feeling of excitement, or something different's going on, something exciting's happening. That's what's happening in Jerusalem, but lots more people and for probably even a greater purpose. So what happened is, during this time, remember, it's a time of Jewish people talking about being free, right? That's the context of it, as they're being freed from being slaves in Egypt. But what often happened is people would kind of, if they wanted to start a rebellion, this is when it would happen. So the Romans would bring in all kinds of extra soldiers into the city to squash any rebellion that could possibly pop up, right? If, if something happens, we're going to put an end to it quickly and swiftly. And that had happened many times in the past, not that long before Jesus actually comes in Jerusalem. This, uh, people had tried to lead rebellions during this time. And it makes sense, because if you think about it, the Jewish people are, are, are talking about, are rejoicing and celebrating the, their ability of, to be free. Are they free when Jesus walks into Jerusalem? And the answer is no. Right? Who's, who's in control of the, the nation of Israel at this point? Right? The Romans are. So you can imagine as they celebrate Passover, they celebrate it about their ancestors who left Egypt, who left slavery, slavery but they celebrate it and they go, man, but, but are we free? Right? And you can imagine they celebrate it, but they, they can't celebrate it fully because they're not free. They're not their own people. They don't make their own laws, dictate their own futures. The Romans are doing that right now. So keep that in mind as we work our way through that passage. That that's the setting that this passage Happens in. So we're going to jump into Luke 19, verse 28. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. So Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem from the eastern side, from the Jericho side. So he goes through Bethpage and Bethany, smaller villages as he makes his way up the Mount of Olives. And when you crest the Mount of Olives, then you're going to drop down into, into Jerusalem. And as he's making his way, he tells two of his disciples, saying, I need you to go ahead of me. There's going to be a colt tied up. I need you to bring that back to me. And you're going, to, you're going to see why he does that in a second. And Jesus isn't stealing, by the way, right? We believe that this person most likely is a disciple. This could have been arranged beforehand that Jesus was going to use this. Or the person just hears Jesus wants it and goes, yeah, sure, he can, he can have it, okay? 
So that's, that's what was happening in this section. The story continues in verse 31. It says, If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? This is a reasonable question for the owner to ask, right? If someone comes up to your car, opens it, and starts it, you're going to say, Hey, why, why are you in my car, right? Now, that's not your car, that's my car. Understandable. They replied, The Lord needs it. Right? Someone tells you that today, you're like, yeah, right, get out of my car, right? That's my car, you don't, you don't speak for God. The owner says, okay. It tells us he's either, the person's either a disciple or Jesus has prearranged this and this is supposed to happen, right? If not, they would, they would put up a fight. So they bring it to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Like their outer coating, their outer coat, outer laying of clothing. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This story is probably sounding familiar. We celebrate this, as we know it, as Palm Sunday, right? That's how we celebrate this story. That's what the story is. They bring Jesus on Jesus rides into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, on the back of this colt. And there's all kinds of things that, that symbolize this, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I want you to see what's happening here. Is this isn't just something Jesus does. It's like, eh, well, this sounds like fun, so I'll ride a colt into Jerusalem. What he's doing is, is he's fulfilling all kinds of prophecy about how the Messiah would come. Okay? So in Zechariah 9, 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What does Jesus have his disciples go ahead and bring him? What's the story tell us? It's a colt. Now most kings we know in the ancient world didn't ride little donkeys into town, right? Donkeys are not, you guys have seen donkeys, you've gone around, around, they're not real imposing or threatening looking, right? They make real weird sounds, right? When the thing starts making sound, you're like, what are you doing? Right? Doesn't sound scary one bit. Most kings rode in on a huge white stallion, a big horse, right? I mean, something that invoked fear and power. So Jesus is not doing that. He's riding in on a lowly colt that's never been ridden before. As he comes into town, into Jerusalem, in a very humble way, which is fitting for Jesus, right? Jesus isn't boisterous. He's not, he's not going to, he's who he says he is. doesn't need to prove anything else, right? It's like guys who drive really tall trucks with big tires, Huh? You know what I'm saying? You grew up in Weezer. They get out, they have to take a step stool to get inside of it, right? It's like, well, you're not that tough, bud. Like, if it's that tall, right? That's, Jesus doesn't have to do that. He's not trying to impress anybody. He knows who he is. So he comes in on colt into town because he's humble in his nature. That's who he is. That's, that's the very fabric of, who, of his being. Look what else he's fulfilling. In 2 Kings 9.13, so they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. This is a coronation of King Jehu in the Old Testament. So we're showing you is when there's history behind the cloaks, right? You took your cloak off and put it on the ground saying, hey, this person isn't just a regular person. This person is our king. This person is someone who we look up to, who's going to guide us and who's going to lead us. And so the, the people of Israel have been doing this for generation after generation after generation. And they do this with Jesus, right? They put their cloaks down in front of him. It's as if he's, they're rolling out the red carpet. That's how we would compare it. 
Or for, for you ladies who've been married, right? Stacy, I got married here at this church. She walked down this aisle. There was a runner that was put down before her and flowers spread before her, right? Why? Because it's about her. Guys, we show up to the wedding, right? We do it, but it's not about us. I mean, we're part of it, but it's not. The reason she's so pretty and we're just dressed in a regular old suit is because it's about her. That's who it's about. She's the person of honor. And so she walks, only she walks down the aisle to flowers before her, right? Us dudes, we sneak up here before the service even starts. And we stand right here, right? We don't even get music. We're just standing here like, I'm here, you know? She's the person we're here to honor. That's what they're doing with Jesus. They're taking their cloaks down. They're putting them down because he's the person of honor. Only he gets this reception because he is king. And last but not least, they shout as Jesus is coming into town. People are shouting. And the shouts are from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, looking forward to the Messiah. It said, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. And Luke records those exact words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm showing you all those things to tell you that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a little donkey, a little colt, he's fulfilling prophecy about who he is. That he is, in fact, the king. That he is the Christ. That he is the Messiah who is to come. The problem comes when the crowd doesn't quite get it. And what I want to show you, and I hopefully don't ruin Palm Sunday for you, by the way, that's not the goal today, is that some of the crowd is not getting it. They're not understanding what the kind of king Jesus is going to be. Okay? So Matthew tells this part in, of the story in his gospel. It says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Sounds familiar. While others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What are those branches? What do we use on the day? Those are palms, right? The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew's account adds a few details that Luke doesn't include in his account. Right? One is the cutting of the branches, those palm branches. Now, palms were used just a few generations before Jesus by the Maccabees. If you know anything about Jewish history, the Maccabees were people who actually, they fought against oppression and led the Jewish people to freedom. And on their coins, they used the palm as their symbol. So when they cut a palm, we just put palms down because we just put palms on. That's what they did. When they're putting a palm down, what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, you're our king. Lead us to freedom. When they shout Hosanna, Hosanna means save us. Hosanna was used by the Maccabees as a a cry for freedom. So what some of the people in the crowd aren't understanding is the kind of king Jesus is going to be. And they want, remember the setting we talked about in the beginning, Passover is what? Celebrating Jewish freedom. And what they want Jesus to do is lead them to physical freedom for their country. What they're shouting when they say Hosanna to the Son of David is, Jesus, let's kick these Romans out of here right now. Let's revolt against them. Let's grab a sword and let's fight and lead us to freedom. You're our king. Now, is Jesus that kind of king? He will be. Read the book of Revelation. He will be that king. His first coming, is he supposed to be that king? Is that the kind of king? No. So what I'm telling you is I think they're missing the point. And watch what Jesus does. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to help it drive this point home. How he responds to what they're doing. Okay, so it's back to Luke 19. It says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now these Pharisees, we, we pick on the Pharisees a lot. These Pharisees actually, I think, are on Jesus' side. 
And we see in the Gospel that there are some Pharisees who believe in Jesus. What they're saying is, Jesus, quiet these disciples down before the Romans come and kill us all. Remember, the Roman soldiers are on high alert right now for any type of rebellion. And when they hear shouts of Hosanna, of, hey, free us, bring us freedom, we want to rebel, they're going to squash that instantly. So these Pharisees, I think, are actually on Jesus' side, saying, Jesus, quiet these disciples down before they make a stir, and we get ourselves in some serious trouble. Because you guys know how Romans brought I told you, Pax Romana was the, was the phrase of Romans, right? Which is peace by the sword. It's not, we're going to have a nice conversation, we'll figure this out. It's, I bring the sword and I kill you, and then we have peace, because you're not alive anymore, right? I mean, that's how they work. That's how they operated. So the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, quiet them down before we all get ourselves in some serious trouble. And Jesus says, I can't. Because if I quiet them down, guess what? All of creation will sing this praise. It says the rocks will cry out. The stones will start shouting, he's the king. See, they have the right idea. Their idea about Jesus is just wrong. And how often in our lives do we do that? Do we have the right idea? We're on the right track? But we're making Jesus fit into our bubble instead of having and reshaping ourselves to fit into Jesus. And I think that's what's happening in this passage. And if we're honest with ourselves, we fall into this same mistake all the time. See, Jesus is king. He is. But he's not that kind of king. He's not the king they want right then, in that place, in that setting. He's king, and he gives us freedom, but it's a different, different kind of freedom. And Jesus feels all that inside of him. And this is what he does. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And I think Jesus weeps, one, because he looks over Jerusalem. He's going to ride in there, and he's going to have some some conflict in his final week with some of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So he weeps because they're not getting it. But he's also weeping because some of his own followers, who have just laid their cloaks down, who are shouting and praising him, don't get it either. They want him to be a different kind of king. And that's just not the king he's going to be in that moment, in that place, in that time. And so he weeps. He weeps over the city. And don't we do the same for people who don't get it? Sometimes that's ourselves. We look in the mirrors and we we weep because we're like, man, God, I've got so off track and gone my own way. And I repent and I'm sorry and, and, and change me and mold me and transform me and make me new. And sometimes it's people that we love who have gone their own way and are doing their own thing and then our actions are so far from God that it's not even funny. And so we weep for them because they don't get it. And Jesus is now going to lay a prophecy down here that comes true roughly 40 years later. It says, The days will come upon you when your enemies, talking about Jerusalem, will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's true. AD 70, the Romans squashed one of these rebellions and they laid the city to waste. Like the temples almost, those of you guys have been to Jerusalem know that there's only a small part of the temple wall still standing, that the Romans demolished almost everything. And Jesus prophesied it 40 years before it happened that it would ha- indeed happen. That because their, their cry and their hope for physical freedom would get in the way of their cry and hope for spiritual freedom. 
And isn't that what Jesus brings us? It's freedom from sin and death. Our physical freedom is never guaranteed. Matter of fact, many Christians, like millions if not more throughout the years, have, have given up their physical freedom because they wouldn't relinquish their spiritual freedom. Right? The Apostle Paul is one of our first examples of that. He, he ends up being killed because why? Because he won't say Caesar is Lord. He'll only say Jesus is Lord. So he takes his, his physical freedom goes, that's second to my spiritual freedom, this freedom that's in Christ, the forgiveness of sins and this mercy and this grace and this compassion. So our physical freedom is never guaranteed and it wasn't for them and it's not for us. There's one more detail I want to express to you in this though. So the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem is not an accident. It's the 10th tenth, tenth of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. It's the beginning of Passover. And what they did on this day is laid out here in Exodus 12. It's referred to as the Lamb Selection Day. I remember the Jewish people on Passover, what do they do? Each household takes a lamb, and they kill it, and they take its blood, and they put it on the doorposts of the house, remembering the Exodus when they did the same thing. And it's the same day that they choose their lambs, their spotless, blemishless lambs, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old lambs without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. That's the law. That's the rule. And in that day, they're still practicing that. And Jewish people today don't because the temple is no longer there. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the day that Jewish families are picking their Passover lamb. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus at his baptism, referred to him as what? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus rides in on the 10th of Nisan and it's not an accident because he is our Passover lamb. He's our lamb whose blood is shed for our freedom. And he rides into Jerusalem on that day because he's our lamb of God who takes away our sin. That's who he is. Now we sometimes mess that up and we think he's somebody else just like they did. They messed it up. They thought he was somebody else. I want to show you a video in just a second. It's of, uh, it's not completely related to the passage, but the point of it is, right? That God is who he says he is. That we have to pay attention to who he says he is and why. And, and I'm showing you that because I want to drive the point home that sometimes we miss it. That sometimes we make Jesus into someone we want him to be. We form and we fashion him into something that's comfortable for us. So Phil Robertson's going to tell us a little story here about who God is and how we respond to him. Be good to your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not return evil for evil. The river rats tend to be far better thieves than your just local rednecks. You be good to them and don't return evil for evil. 
I was fishing for a living. It's my livelihood. I'm working my tail off. They're hungry, feed them. These river rats would, would steal my fish. I'd caught several of them before then. Usually I'd just come up, roar out there, come up with my shotgun and say, the next person who moves dies. They're stealing my fish here, Lord. They're hungry, feed them. And you want me to do what? Do not return evil for evil. Well, I have to see if that will work, but it makes no earthly sense, that's for sure. So one day I heard a motor slow down. These guys pull over to my, to my float and I'm watching them through the bushes. So I said, I'm gonna be good to them, but I'm carrying my gun just in case. They're not good to me. And I'm gonna do what the Lord said. I'm gonna be good to them. So I roar up on them and they're getting my net almost up in their boat and they look up and they see this guy coming. They be me, wide open. I said, what were you boys doing with that net? And they said, oh, is that what that was? I said, yeah, that'd be a hook net. It belongs to me. I said, here's the good news. I'm gonna raise the net and whatever's in there, I'm gonna give them to you. And when I said that, they looked at each other and they said, they left me looking back and all of a sudden up and down the river, they quit stealing my fish. I just gave them what they were trying to steal. I took that to mean God was right all along. Phil's point of the story was that God is who he says he is, and his words are good. And when we do them, no matter how hard they might be, we're going to be better off. Now, Jesus is king. That was the point of the story. He's king. So he asked something of us. Asked to give him everything we have. Starting first and foremost with our hearts. Because that's what he wants more than anything else in all the world. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why he wants my heart or your heart, because our hearts aren't that great. But he wants them for his own. And taking that very simple advice that, that Phil gave us, is that God's words are good, means we ought to give him our hearts. Not corners of it, not pieces of it, not the parts we're willing to relinquish, but all of it, to give him our heart. That's what he wants. Now, he's king, and he can be trusted with it. He's the only one, matter of fact, we can trust our whole heart with. No one else can be trusted with our whole heart. They'll, they'll break it one way or another. But the king can be trusted with our hearts. If you haven't given your heart to this Jesus yet, I suggest you do it, because your life will never be the same. If you're holding on to parts of your heart as your own, and you're unwilling, and you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're unwilling to give him all of it, I'd suggest you give him all your heart. He's the only one worth keeping it and holding it. He's the only one that can be trusted with it because he's king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in this place and to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we're so grateful that you are who you say you are, that your word has always been and will always be good. So we're going to trust you at your word. 
When you tell us to love each other, we're going to do the best we can to do that. When you tell us to love our enemies, we're going to do the best we can to do that. When you tell us that you are king, that you'll do anything for us, we trust you at your word because you did. Because you faced the cross for each and every one of us. And there on that cross, you are lamb, our Passover lamb. You shed your blood so we could put that blood on the doorposts of our hearts. So that we could be reconciled back to you. We could be in relationship with you. So Father, we give you all of our hearts today and every day. God, will you reveal to us, will you use your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us to show us the parts that we're keeping for ourselves. Would you help us to slowly but surely relinquish control and hold of those and give them all to you. Knowing that you are good. That you're the king. And like those disciples did nearly 2,000 years ago as they laid their cloaks down for you, Father, we lay all, all of ourselves down to you. We humble ourselves completely and wholly before you. Knowing that our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags compared to you. God, we admit today and every day that we can't do it alone. That there's nothing we can do to take our own sin away. That we have to rely wholly and completely on you. And so please help us to do that every day. To rely completely on you and your grace, your love and your mercy your compassion, which you, which you hand out to us lavishly every day. Father, one more time, once again, we thank you for who you are. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.